Hello, my name's Jane Dacre. Welcome to the second season of Medical Women Talking. The podcasts are made up of conversations with some amazing women doctors who've had incredible careers. Being a woman and a doctor can be challenging, but these conversations are designed to be shared to help those women aspiring to fulfilling careers and to leadership roles. We hear a lot of negative stuff about medicine these days, but these inspiring stories show us that medicine can still be brilliant. Listen and be inspired. Claire Gerarda is one of a small number of people who've been both the chair and the president of the Royal College of General Practitioners. Claire's family come from Malta, so she was an outsider when she came to this country but was inspired by her father, who was a GP. She's gone on to become a household name in medicine and contributes enormously across a broad area of policy and also politics. She chairs the NHS Assembly and is to be seen often in newspapers and on the television. What I'd like to do is to just go through your career. So if I may, could you give me a summary of your career so far and we'll take it from there? Yes, of course. Well... I'm just completing my 35th year as a GP of the same practice. And before I became a GP, I did psychiatry uh, and actually got my membership in psychiatry and before that, a few other specialties. So I've really, if you like, entered and been in that space between mental health and general practice ever since, uh, more or less since I've qualified. And what that's meant for me is taking quite a few local and national leadership roles in mental health, primary care mental health, but also along the way, also becoming chair of the Royal College of GPs and now president of the College of GPs. So I suppose I've had the absolute boundary of being a GP in South London with my partnership, but that boundary has allowed me the the, the pleasure, the ability, the flexibility to do all sorts of other things along the way. So what was it about the GP psychiatry interface that attracted you in right at the beginning? Oh, the reason I... I was always going to be a GP. I was always going to be a GP, if the truth be known. My father was single-handed GP, and from a very, very early age, my one of my first memories is our home was the surgery, was peering down and seeing patients in our front room. And Dad used to take me on home visits when I was about eight or nine to to what was then the post-war slums of Peterborough. And I just loved it. I mean, he used to talk to me about medicine. I mean, you know, as a nine or eight-year-old can can understand. But I just really loved Dad's position in society. I loved his interaction with patients. I loved the fact that, if you like, he was respected. So I think I was always destined to be a GP, but I strayed en route. I, during one of my first surgical house jobs, I used to spend lunch breaks, we had them in those days, in the library at the Whittington. And for some reason or other, I used to pull out what was the Green Journal, which is a journal of psychiatry. And I used to read all about these interesting developments in the management of schizophrenia. God only knows why I was doing this. And I thought, oh, I'd really like to do psychiatry. So I applied and got into the Maudsley, telling them I was interested in Freud and schizophrenia. And whilst at the Morsley on the psychiatry rotation, I realised that every job I did, I enjoyed. Every job, from old age to children to long-term conditions to forensic. And what does that mean? It means I'm a generalist. So soon after I met my husband, Simon Wesley, I thought, well, 
you know, he's he's en route to be a psychiatrist, a, an academic. My heart really lies in general practice. So I left a psychiatry at that point, which wasn't easy. It felt like a, a sort of secret. I couldn't ask people for references. I couldn't tell them because what you didn't do then was leave the Maudsley Hospital to go into general practice. But I went into general practice and I've never looked back and it's been fabulous. So um, you 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 got a bit involved in the old snakes and ladders, did you? Did you have to take a... a... Yes, I went from being the equivalent of a senior registrar, it wasn't quite cool that at the time, to becoming an SHO in Obsangaini. So I went right down uh, the, 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 the ladder and did an SHO job at UCLH in, in, in Obsangaini, which was actually very interesting to do it at a, a slightly more senior level. And I also knew more. So I knew more about mental health, for example. So when we used to see drug users pregnant ladies who were drug users, I sort of knew how to manage those conditions. But I also think it gave me a maturity to become friends with who were then the, the registrar and senior registrar, who have been lifelong friends ever since. So we we shared the time I was married and we were all trying to, to start a family and so we would all compare notes. And, and so I think for me, it was actually really, it was really a good thing to do at that later stage because I think it showed maturity. Had I been in today's world, of course, I'd have had to start from scratch because very little of my existing training would have been counted. And by this point, I'd already done 18 months in medicine, 10 months in accident emergency, two and a half years in psychiatry, but I would have had to start again, which I think is a problem for new doctors now who are trying to, to move around in their in their career development. Yeah, and a lot of people do want to move around, don't they? So that does make it difficult. You you talked to also a little bit about um, the firm, how you, you, you felt as if you were part of a team, and I think that's something that's become a bit more difficult for today's doctors. Yeah, much more difficult. I mean, not only did we were we part of a team, but you know, we were talking about our own last menstrual periods together. And when we were all getting pregnant at the same time, it, it felt like we were a team, not just a professional team, but actually a team of friends that have sustained that. And I do think it's a big gap that most doctors are now becoming, or a lot of hospital doctors are now becoming uh, part of the gig economy. They go in, they do the job, they go home again. And if they're fortunate enough to meet somebody whilst they're doing that job, that they might then have another interaction with, that's really good, but on the whole, you don't, and I think it's a real sadness. It is something that, that we've lost, isn't it? However, um, you thrived uh, and went into your practice. Did you train in the practice where you eventually worked? No, I didn't train. I actually lost my training post because I became pregnant, and at those times there was no provision uh, for allowing people, women, to defer uh, their entry to their training year. So I had a big gap because... I lost my training post uh, and then had to reapply. That gave me another year where I had to, if you like, twiddle my thumbs. I didn't twiddle my thumbs. I went and got a, a supernumerary post caring for intravenous pregnant drug users, as one does. So, and then I applied and actually got a training post up the road from where my practice is. The reason I chose the practice was that it sort of had, it, it, had, it was practice with potential. It, it had all the right values, caring for the homeless, drug users and, and alcoholics, but it, was, it needed 
it needed more doing to it. It wasn't a finished product. It was also a practice that was within a stone throws of my home. And it was also a practice that I was registered with at the time. So, and my own GP sort of said, actually, when she was giving me an antenatal case, said, oh, I'm retiring in 18 months. Why don't you apply? So all these, the zeitgeist was there for me to apply. And so I, I went to the practice. It was part of the space that I knew and well in Lambeth. And I've loved it. I, it's been an extraordinary partnership where people only leave through retirement or sadly through death. And we have been, like a good marriage, a very coherent team. So that's that's lovely, a lovely, lovely story. So at some stage in all of that, though, you got interested in the wider world or were you always interested in policy, politics, the way the service runs? Well, looking back, and you can only say this in retrospect, is I sort of always had ideas I'd be sitting in the consulting room and I just had ideas about how things should change. And the first idea I had was our doctor's bag, which wasn't fit for purpose. So idea of how we should change it. But the ideas that I brought to the practice are ideas around how we care for drug users because I'd left drug users with an 18-month waiting time to get treatment. And this was the beginning of the HIV pandemic. And I just wanted to make it better. So it wasn't that I set out to be a leader. I mean, I often say that I no more expected to be chair of or president of a college than to be the Queen of England. But I desperately wanted to change what I'm seeing in the consulting room by affecting change outside. And I got myself involved in all sorts of things in our local commissioning groups, in our local leadership groups. I became the sort of lead for primary care mental health. And the more I did, the more I knew needed to be done. So I didn't get involved with politics. I got involved by just wanting to change things, which sounds grandiose now, but honestly, for about 20 years, I think I was a little bit a, a little bit manic in that I just always had ideas that needed to be that needed to be put in into action. And general practice gave me the absolute footing for that. And I got a job as a senior policy advisor in the Department of Health in alcohol and drugs and that sort of started my leadership journey, I suppose, and I became a very big fish in a very small sea. And so it became, it was easier than somebody saying, you know, in a, in a different area for me to, to write papers, to give talks, to be noticed. So I didn't set out to be a leader. I set out to change what I was seeing in the consulting room and sorting out my patients who were getting such a bad deal of services outside. It's interesting, um, quite a lot of the women I'm talking to feel as if they went into leadership because there was something that needed to be yes. needed to be sorted. So less driven ambition, but more, oh my goodness, this needs to be sorted out. And, and I suppose, Jane, we, we were lucky because the, the system around us allowed us to do that. For me, general practice allowed me to do that, my partnership. I could have been in a different partnership who would have said, you can't leave, you've got to do eight and a half clinical sessions. If you don't, you can't be a partner. So I think I was very lucky and I have been lucky the whole way along. So so practically, how did you sort it out? Did did you, as a full-time GP, that's incredibly busy, how did you sort well, out your working with... When I first went to the partnership as applied for the job, they wanted an, an eight and a half session a week doctor. And by this time, I was already running a, 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 what I call a barefoot service for 
for drug users in one of the local needle exchanges. I was sort of taking my doctor's bag and I wanted to carry that on. So I went to the application and said, I will only do seven clinical sessions, which was a big risk for me because I was basically saying you're, you're advertising for an eight and a half partnership and I will only do seven. It's not that I won't bring the income in for the other because a partner is full time. So you have to do other things to add on. So I was fortunate to have enlightened partners. Uh, they, they weren't frightened of me because they could have been frightened. I mean, imagine I'm bringing drug use into a partnership and we were the only practice, we were seeing something like 50% of all the local drug users. Uh, how did we? I, I suppose I, I chose well. I chose my partners well who felt the same as I did. We also had a an agreement that we would take an equal partnership share of income. As, and if one bit of it didn't bring in enough to draw us out, there could be a sort of dispensation if it was for the greater good, as long as it was within a limit. So... We had a very complicated partnership agreement which allowed me to leave and do work outside the practice, but at the same time not be overly financially penalised for that. And and so, the, so it was about negotiation. It's like a good marriage. You talk to each other, you, you have arguments, you, you negotiate, and then you find a way through. It's interesting because um, that idea of recognising the added value of women is often is often not there. And frequently when women want to have flexibility in their careers, they compromise on career progression yes. and, and salary progression. So an enlightened group. I mean, I'm sure you're talking to women because the one thing, when I first went to the partner I was replacing, the, the, the Lady Rose, did all the cervical smears and family planning. And at that time, remember, it's very unusual to have female GPs. And so they wanted me to do all the cervical smears and family planning. And I actually said, no, I don't want to be labelled as the woman's doctor. There are other things that I think my skills would be better used. Now, a lot of women wouldn't be able to find a partnership that allowed them to do that. They would be bolted in. And so they wouldn't have been able to develop their career. They wouldn't. So I think the message is, Choose your partners, all sorts of partners, your relationship partners, your friend partners and your work partners well, and make sure that you don't have to compromise too much your, your I won't say career aspiration, Jane, because I never expected to be a leader, but it's, it's, so it's more than that. It's don't compromise your own internal sense of where you want to go and what you want to do, because there's never a second chance. Yeah, no, Absolutely. So you you then went on to be the chair of the College of GPs. What was that like? It was very difficult. Uh, at the time, I was the first female chair for 50 years, so there wasn't a role model. Very few of the rural colleges had female chairs or presidents at that time. I think there was only a couple. And so people didn't look like me, Jane. They didn't look short, female and foreign. They, they just didn't look like me. And... I was also entering at a time when there was a lot of problems with the Health and Social Care Act and I had to negotiate my way through and being, I mean, I'll say I was assertive, but people often call women who are assertive aggressive. And I wasn't, I was trying to be assertive on behalf of patients. So it was very, very difficult. It, not my college, my college was fabulous, but other presidents, other medical leaders, it just, it was a difficult space to be, if the truth be known. Uh, because as a female leader, you you just have to be much more assertive than a male leader. Maybe things are changing now, but you have to, a bit like, a, I suppose, a peacock, just fluff yourself out. 
which isn't something that sits naturally, certainly not with me, and I suspect not with lots of women. And there wasn't anybody or very few people that I could align myself with, and certainly probably the days before good social media, before WhatsApp, where you could actually have a support group really there. Uh, So I'm glad I did it, but it wasn't the easiest of jobs. So did you enjoy it in retrospect? Was it a good oh, thing? Oh, gosh. Do? Being a president of the college, or the chair is the president, is the most extraordinary job you can ever do. You will never, ever, ever have as much influence. You will never have so much authority, so much power, albeit you have to use that power properly. And it is the most amazing job. And somebody told me when I was coming to the end, it takes six months to get over the bereavement of stopping. And I think it does. Um so, so whilst you were there, there were obviously some fantastic achievements, and I think your your contribution to uh, opposition of the Health and Social Care Act, in retrospect, has turned out to be uh, very wise. Uh, there must have been some difficult times, some lows. Is there anything that you that you want to share? Just because other people have lows too? Oh, listen, there was lots of lows. The lowest of the low was. Uh... It's very technical, but it was coming up to the end of the Health and Social Care Act, and it was going through the House of Lords, and there was a, a, a very technical issue about Regulation 75, and, and the government had said that they'd they'd changed the regulations uh, because we were lobbying for change, and, and my father was dying at the time, and in fact, I was in Norfolk and left to come to a meeting in London, and he died as I was travelling down, and... I then arrived back at the college and saw that the Regulation 75 hadn't really been changed at all. And I, I might have made an inopportune comment and said, you know, that they were lying, the government were lying, which isn't a term you should ever use. And I got such vitriol from that, from, from external to the college. And when I rang them and said, listen, my father died today, I'm not, you know, it, it was still a blank wall. And I was so distraught at that point. And this, the bill went through the House of Lords over the next week. And I can remember the day the bill went through, I got a terrible flu, uh, really bad flu. And I made me realise that the psyche and the soma do work together. On this day, which was probably the lowest day of my chairmanship, I became physically unwell, which lasted for about three weeks. So, but it's fine. I mean, in the end, this is what leaders do. They have to pick themselves up, start again. This is what the job entails. And uh, you have life events in between. And... So, as I said, there were lows, and but most of it was an incredible high. I don't think high in the sense of, you know, drug-related high, but a, a real sense of excitement. And you must have felt the same, Jane. Some days you'd be inside the House of Lords, you'd be seeing the Prime Minister, you'd be going to the House of Commons, you'd be seeing national leaders, and you think, oh, my God, what have I done today? And it would be amazing. Yeah, fantastic. So uh, a lot of um, the women that we've talked to have also talked about their family life and their and their home lives. Tell me what it's like living with Sir Simon. Well, Simon and I have always had parallel careers. Uh, Simon is, was president of his college and is very successful. He's Regis professor. And we had a, I'm sure he doesn't mind me sharing this. We, we had two, we've got two children. And when they were little, we sort of had a big argument because he was out, I was out. And we came to an agreement that if it's important enough for us not to be with the children, which is the most important part of one's life, then it has to be important. And we wouldn't ask each other questions. We would just make sure that we managed the situation. In other words, we spent all of our money on childcare and help at home. Simon's parents were wonderful and would come down and help. So 
that gave us the freedom really not to say well, why are you away next week why are you away for three days if it's important enough that he needed to be away or I needed to be out then it was important and Simon has been my greatest support he's and I hope I have been of him because he understood my job I've understood his job as president so yeah going back to choose your partner choose your partner well if I do have one regret and regrets are always great because there's nothing you can do to change it if I was to change anything I would want half a day off a week just half a day doesn't matter which half day where I could spend some time being a mother because the bits that I missed out on were the, the, the mothering bits, picking up from school, the nativity plays, just the going to tea with, with their friends. And maybe I've got a romanticised ideal of it, but I wish I'd had half a day a week just to down tools and be a, have a different identity from that of a, a, of a female leader. It's interesting because I think some of the younger women coming through are, are clearer about that now than than our generation and our generation. But Jane, you cannot be, unless you're extraordinarily lucky, you can't be success unless you work hard. There is, and, and working hard means making sacrifices. And, you know, unless you're extraordinarily lucky, maybe have you know, you live with your parents and they look after the children and there's no guilt or fear. It's it's sacrifices and guilt. I mean, as a working mother, I've always been had the feeling of guilt that I'm not giving enough to the family, not giving enough to work. And I think that is something that we just have to get to grips with. And, and you only feel guilty for something that you love. And it belongs to you, me as the individual, not to my children, who are pretty stable, sensible people. So it's also about accepting what belongs to you and what you think you're doing to your children. Your children, as long as you give them consistent love then they'll be fine well they both do seem to be doing yes. doing very well they're better than fine so um you've talked about partner partners you've talked about your partner what else has helped you to thrive well again it's the support around me so very early on probably during my chairmanship, I decided to get supervision. So intermittently over the years, I will either individual supervision or group supervision, so with our teams. And I also began a training as a group analyst, which means you have to go into twice a week group analytical therapy groups. So you sort of be able to, you can start to talk about issues that aren't, in, that are in a safe space. People often talk about safe spaces, but and I would recommend anybody get involved in a support group, be that a Balint group, a Schwartz group, a reflective practice group, anything where you can actually just share the complexity of what you're going through. Very early on in my career, I was in what was called a young practitioners group. So we used to meet once a month and talk about the difficulties of being a mother and working as a GP and climbing up the greasy pole. So that's, again, what I would recommend to people. Fantastic. And what do you do to relax? What do I do to relax? I'm beginning to learn to play bridge. That doesn't sound very <laughs> relaxing to me. And it's it's fabulous because I'm there, I'm making friends. Can you imagine making friends in your 60s? Good friends, people that you can joke with and laugh with and go away with. And uh, it's not the bridge. I mean, the bridge is a bit like saying, well, I can ride a bike. Okay, you can go around the park with friends. It's the fact that you can learn a skill. You don't have to be particularly good at it. And it opens up a whole new vista of enjoyment, of people, of groups. And uh, yeah, I love it. 
And finally, a word of advice to those coming through. What would you tell younger women who have aspirations to be leaders? I think I would go back to go back to try and get the basics right. The love and the work. I mean, again, Freud said love means a partner. That could be a work partner, but also work. Get something that sustains you. But fundamentally, for me, if you are aspiring to be a female leader of all sorts, don't think of it as a career progression up a leadership path. Just think about that sorting out what you see in the consulting room by trying to affect change outside and just enjoy it. Lovely. Very wise. Thank you very much, Claire. Thanks, Jane. Thank you for listening to this episode of Medical Women Talking. It's been a privilege to spend time with all these medical women. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this season. Don't forget there are many other interviews in season one.